Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and as always, we've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, we're going to be starting off here in just a moment uh, with another great discussion on Coach's Corner. I've got uh, two great professionals joining me tonight on the panel uh, for that discussion, and I'm looking forward to speaking with both of them. And a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by this evening's special guest, Tava Dale. Uh, she is the owner of Tava Inc. Uh, she's also a board member of the Golf Heritage Society and uh, also the author of Terroir of Golf, a golf book for wine lovers. And uh, we're going to talk about that and more when she joins me on the second half of the program. But first up, as I mentioned, it's Coach's Corner time, so let me introduce tonight's uh, guest panelists. Uh, first up, of course, is Pete Buchanan. He's uh, been teaching this great net game now for over 30-plus years. Uh, he's also the founder and director of instruction of Plain Simple Golf, LLC, which, of course, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace, and he's been helping golfers of all levels uh, focus on building a repeatable swing. Uh, also joining the panel tonight is another favorite, Sue Weger. She is a number one best-selling international author, motivational speaker, and peak performance coach, and she's been teaching this great game as an LPGA Class A professional for over 24 years and is the owner of Weger Consulting LLC, and her book, Golf, The Last Six Inches, Change Your Brain, is available at Amazon. Com. So, uh, Pete and Sue, welcome back to Coach's Corner Panel. Thanks, Ted. It's good to be here. For the conversation. All right. I appreciate it. And as I was mentioning to you guys off air, um, this is, um, we got about another month to give or take about a month and a half for the season. Uh, we'll be wrapping up on Golf Talk Live here. I think the last date, if I'm not mistaken, is December 14th. And uh, then we'll be taking a break. And then we'll be returning back. The show will return back early February. Uh, Coach's Corner, of course, doesn't start back up until March, but the uh, Golf Talk Live Light, as I like to call it, will be starting back up in early February. So I'll give you the dates uh, here in the next couple of weeks exactly uh, when we'll be coming back and when our last show is going to be. So I hope you'll stick around and, and join us for that. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to be uh, having a great discussion tonight. And I'm going to start um, with you, Pete. I'll do it in the order that I introduced you. And... Um, this is something that's, uh, you know, it's sort of a multitude of, of uh, questions here and that, but I, I'm sort of covering a broad range of things. But, you know, we, we see this more, I think, in the professional level. Um, we've seen it with players like Nick Faldo. Uh, Tiger has, has certainly done it and a few others. Um, uh, and that is sort of seeking that perfection. Uh, those are two that, that readily come to mind. 
And there are certain inherent dangers of sort of seeking perfection, perfection, especially in the golf swing. You know, Nick Baldo really struggled with his game very early on. Then he hooked up with David Ledbetter and uh, seemed to turn things around and went on ultimately to win six majors, including two masters. Um, but he was always sort of in pursuit of perfection. Um, and, and it's good to always want to improve and get better, but there's also inherent dangers, as I mentioned, to try to uh, perfect that golf swing. Maybe you could talk about some of that um, a little bit and give me your thoughts on, on some of the dangers of trying to be too perfect. Well, that is a great question. Um, I think you can always strive for perfection, understanding that it's going to give you, you know, the ability to, you know, give you more peak performance. Um, you know, hitting shot after shot the same all the time is is difficult to do, although there is a way you can do it. But under the circumstances, under the under the pressures, um, it, it's it's hard to repeat, and it's also hard to score. But I think you should, you can strive for perfection if you understand where that strive and that drive is taking you, um, and if you get caught up in you know, it has to be perfect or I'm not going to get there, then I think it can be a huge detriment. It can actually work as a negative because, you, you know, you just can't seem to get there. I think you can use it as a stepping stone to help you, you know, improve your performance, you know, striving to get it, you know, correct or whatever you feel correct is. Um, but, yeah, there's there's always that, that danger that you can, you know, work too hard for trying to get something and then you lose sight of other areas and then it takes you in the wrong direction. So, um you know, I think it can work both ways, but yeah, I think you know, ultimately you have to be careful. You have to understand, you know, just what that that drive for perfection is and how it can best suit you and your ability to get yourself better. Well, well said. Um, and, and Sue, I'm going to give you sort of the same question, but I'm going to tweak it just slightly. You know, there's another way to look at this as well, and not so much about trying to. Uh, you know, perfect your golf swing. But a lot of times we've seen, and the two players I mentioned are two that actually dramatically changed throughout their careers, their golf swing. They started, um, you know, it might, for the average, uh, you know, golfer out there, it might not look that much different, but to the trained eye, there was some definitely notable things that they had done different. And I guess that's one of the things that I'm wanting to talk a little bit about is it's okay to want to improve and obviously and, and, and get better at, at your ball striking, be more consistent, uh, and there's nothing wrong with sort of seeking that per- perfection. But I think the other uh, problem that can arise is trying to change things too much dramatically. So, you know, you get to one level and mm-hmm. you're doing well, and then all of a sudden you're pivoting and you're doing something entirely different because you're trying to get that, what you think is that perfection uh, in your golf swing. Can you touch on that aspect a little bit that, you know, sometimes there can be a danger in, in mixing and, and sort of revamping or reinventing the wheel too many times in your career because that can obviously cause setbacks. Give me your thoughts here. Yeah, I think it's, um, that's why I wrote the book in regards to golf last six inches, because I think the problem with a lot of golfers is they're what I call very analytical thinkers. And what happens with that is when they're over the golf ball, they're thinking way too much about their golf swing. And, you know, like with Vision 54, what they always talk about is like they have a play box and they have a think box. And when you're over the ball, you should be in a play box, which means you should be in your right side of your brain, not your left side of your brain in that kind of in that way. So when people stand over the ball and they're thinking about, okay, I need to have, you know, grip, aim, stance, posture, yada, yada, um, that's what interferes with um, their performance, if you may. 
And I think that's why they're striving for perfection because they're thinking, okay, I have to have, here's my bullet points of my golf swing. I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, and I need to do that. And I think that's where people get in trouble because when they're standing over the golf ball, they're thinking way too much um, about what they're supposed to do versus thinking about, okay, where do I want to go? Where do, where do I want to take the ball to in regards to the target? And I think that's where people struggle, um, you know, and that's why I teach my players, okay, the, here's the think box and here's the play box. Once you step over the ball, that you're over in standing up and over the ball, you're in your right brain. You're not in your analytical brain. You, you, you know, you want to have a free-flowing swing. You don't want to be thinking about what you're doing. And I think that's one of the problems with a lot of, um, a lot of people when they're trying to make improvements. Um, they're thinking too much, um, and I think that's, that's where people struggle. And, uh, yeah, that's what I teach my players. Yeah, and great answer as well. And, and you know, you're, you're exactly right. I think, you know, in that sort of um, seeking perfection in, in our golf game, especially our golf swing, uh, yeah. there comes a point in time you have to be sort of happy where you are. And, you know, there's always going to be some players, that, as you pointed out, um, Sue, very analytical that want to dissect the swing, you know, to its core. And that can sometimes work to your advantage, but a lot of times it actually works to your detriment because then you overthink the process um, and then you're, yeah. you're always going to find something to pick apart. So you're exactly right. You just need to, um, you know, there's a time to prepare and, and a time to get ready, and then there's a time to actually play, and you've got to know when to flick the switch um, and get out of that analytic, analytical box, if you will. So uh, great answers, guys. Uh, I think you hit it right on the head. Um, Pete, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Um, this is going to seem like a, a very simplistic question, but I think sometimes in, in any really teaching capacity, we want to sort of teach what we know um, when really what we need to do is listen more to our students. Um, uh, it, it's not just the courteous thing to do, but it's important. Um, give us a, a reason why that's important. Why do we need to listen to our students? Why don't we, I mean, we, we know the golf swing. We know what has to happen. Why don't we just sort of stand up there in our soapbox and say, hey, here's what you need to do, do this, do that, and have at it. Why do we need to listen to students? Pete, I'm not sure if your mic's off or... That's my fault. Sorry about that. I was muted. No, that's... <laughs> um, I, I think, um, you know, to me, when, when you're... You've got to listen to them so you get a better understanding of where they're coming from and how they learn and also what their concerns are and, and what they feel they need to work on. And then you can sort of move that around into, you know, putting it into how you're going to teach them to get there. But I think, you know, I always use the deal my dad always taught me where you, they ask a question and you answer their question with a question. And you keep asking them questions until you get, you know, dialed down enough to get the answers that you want. But I think, you know, for me, too, I like to start off a lesson just finding out how their day went. I think I told you the story once we had a, a guy in there for a lesson, and he just had a horrible day. And he, I think he hit two balls, and I said, grab your club, just go have a beer. And we sat there. He had more fun talking for the hour than hitting golf balls just to get him away. He had such a rotten day, he wasn't going to hit good golf balls anyway. But sometimes listening right. to him can take you into a totally different aspect. But no, I, I think it's, you know, we as instructors, we need to listen to what they're telling us because it can enhance what we're trying to do. And it, it just, 
I think it gets your foot more in the door because then they're like, hey, he really is concerned with what I'm trying to do instead of just giving me, you know, what he knows. Um, obviously, we know more than they do uh, in, in the most part, especially when it's concerned with golf. But, you know, they know a lot more relative to what they do relative to what we're talking about. So if you can match the two together by just asking them questions and listening to what they're telling you, um, it's just going to enhance the overall process. Exactly. I think that's a great point. And, and, and Sue, what is it that you're trying to hear when you're listening? I mean, you're, you're obviously, you know, as Pete pointed out, you're trying to get a better understanding of where they're at in the, in the thought process of their game. What, you know, what is it that's concerning them? Is it not just necessarily the short game or, or hitting their driver, but sometimes there's other things that come out. So are there specific things that you generally listen more? I mean, obviously you're listening in, in general overall, but are there specific things that you're looking to try to uncover when you're having discussions with your students? Yeah, what I always ask is, what I always ask them is, um, you know, do you think you're visual, auditory, or kinesthetic? And the difference between those those three is, you know, if you're visual, are you, you know, what do you see? Um, If you're auditory, what are you hearing? And kinesthetically, what are you feeling? So those three things I always ask in regards to, and sometimes I even, you know, just, walk up to them and just say, well, do you think you're visual, auditory, or kinesthetic? And then I just kind of explain to them, you know, um, how do you learn? You know, what's the best way you learn? And that's why, because I'm, you know, I want to know, because I want to speak their language in regards to how they learn. So if they're, you know, if they're visual, then I talk about, you know, seeing a picture or uh, visualizing an image or, um, but, if, you know, if they're auditory, they're hearing, they're going to they're gonna hear things from me. Or if they're kinesthetic, they're going to feel things when they're over the golf ball. And I think it's important that each person knows who they are and how they learn because then I can communicate to them approximately, you know, um, if they're kinesthetic, then I'm going to basically show them um, some things. Or they're, if they're visual, I'm going to show them. Or if they're auditory, we'll talk through it. Um, but I think that's why it's really important to understand who your student is and where they're coming from and what kind of a what type of learner they are, um, because in that way, you as an instructor, you step into that mode of instruction, mm-hmm. and that way the the student picks up picks up more information from you than if you were you know if let, let's say if they were kinesthetic and you're talking and you just kind of show them things they're not going to pick up as much um, versus if you, if they can feel it, they'll pick up more more of it. Couldn't agree more. You know, I, I think back to, you know, when I was in school, um, the teachers that I learned the most from, because I'm a visual person, um, so, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, math was always a, a strong subject, but, you know, I needed to see the teacher working out the problems on the board. If they just sort of went up and it was like, you know, blah, 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 um, I had a, a tougher time grasping some of the concepts than if they went up there and actually demonstrated and worked out the problems, then I could pick up and mm-hmm. understand, okay, I've got to do this or I've got to do that. So that's important. I think also, too, a, an important question that has to be asked, and, I, and I, you know, this is something that, that, uh, that Cindy Miller uh, talks about a lot on the other program, Women of Golf, on Tuesdays, uh, and that is the why um, you know, she will ask students right up front, especially new students, you know, why? Why, are you, why do you want to play golf? What's your reasoning behind it? Is, you know, are you looking to be competitive? Or are you just out having fun? Because I think once you understand the why, 
they're there in the first place, then that helps, again, isolate into other areas how you're going to approach it. Because if somebody's just out to have a, a good time, maybe they're going to just play a few times a year, they're not really you know, overly serious, then you don't have to dial down as deep and you don't have to draw as much information out of them. But if they want to be competitive, then you have to get into that a little bit more. And once you understand that why they're there in the first place, it makes it a little bit easier to uh, just to isolate some of the steps that need to be taken. But uh, again, both uh, great answers. Um, Pete, I'm stepping back to you, so make sure you unmute your mic. Uh, it's, uh, you got it. This is, yeah. Listen, I've done it too. I've rambled on here some nights and forgot to take my mute off. So, um, but anyways, this is one here. And, and, you know, again, I'm going to give you a couple of examples uh, of players that we've seen over the years, but, you know, getting students to accept the quirks in their swings, Lee Trevino, Jim Furyk come to mind. Um, I think sometimes in the past, there has been sort of a, a movement to take those sort of quirkiness out of, uh, a, you know, a, a golfer's swing. And sometimes that's not necessary. So how do you get them to accept it? You know, everybody wants to have this picture-perfect swing, but sometimes people just, you know, I mean, Lee Trevino and Jim Furyk, both very, uh, you know, great players in their own right. Uh, obviously, Lee's played uh, much longer than Jim. Um, but sometimes it's okay to have a, a, a quirkiness about the swing. They can loop it around like Jim Furyk, or they can, you know, be very open to, uh, uh, you know, to their target line like Lee was for, for his career. How do you get them to accept that, and how do you figure out how to sort of work it in the process to still make them an accomplished player without having to sort of dismantle maybe that quirkiness? Your thoughts? Well, I think in looking at their overall motion, you just kind of explain to them that even though there, there might be a, a quirkiness to what they're doing, um, relative to impact, it, you can have it so it, it doesn't have that big of a, a, a result to it. I mean, we're trying to get the golf club in a certain position of contact. And so even though they may have a, a peculiar motion that they make, uh, I can tell you one of, one of them I have in particular, the club goes straight up in the air in the backswing at the start. And I, at the start, tried to get it in a different place. And, and I tell you what, it goes straight up in the air, but it ends up in the right spot at the top. So I just left it alone. It looks crazy, but it ends up in the right place. And so it's easier for him to make a downswing from there than if I actually put it in the spot where I think it should be. Um, so, you know, you, you, can, you can work the quirks into, in showing them how through the motion that, yeah, it may be there, but relative to that movement, it actually can assist them in getting the right impact. And I think in the end, you know, like anything else, if they hit, you know, straight solid shots, then, you know, that quirkiness in their, their emphasis on it changes in a hurry. You know, they get used to it. But I think you can show them that, you know, even though it has that in there, um, you know, it's not a detriment, but then you can also too, you know, put them in a place and say, well, if you want to swing it more conventional, let's see what happens. And then sometimes the impact when they do that isn't very good at all. So then you can show them and say, look, you know, even though this is in here, it's not going to keep you from getting the results that we're trying to get. Yep. Uh, again, well said. And, and Sue, I think, you know, when you look at a couple of other players that come to mind, um, you know, Freddie Couples and, and even John Daly, uh, it's not so much that they had necessarily a quirkiness about their swing, um, but both of them took the club back in a, a what we would classify as a non-conventional way, um, but it worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Freddie had some back issues, um, you know, throughout his career that he's managed to, uh, you know, have addressed and, and seems to be in a much better place now, but it did give him a lot of problems. So there's obviously, 
So is there a point maybe if it's early in the student's um, uh, learning curve, if you will, that maybe to avoid situations down the road that could potentially, you know, be detrimental to their back or what have you, maybe make adjustments. Uh, and again, I'm going to remove the word quirks in, in your case because it's not really necessarily quirk. It's just somebody, you know, maybe wants to emulate. They see Freddie or, or a, a John Daly and they want to emulate that. It may not be right for them. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you find the right balance and say, okay, or when, when is the appropriate time to make changes? Pete pointed out when's the time to sort of, you know, if it's working, don't mess it, you know, don't mess it up. Yeah, I think you have to look at um, a couple things. Number one, some people might have physical limitations um, in their, you know, in their body that are, are creating that type of swing, for example. Um, and that's what I ask them. I said that's first one of the questions I ask all my students. I said, do you have any physical limitations that's causing you to, um, you know, create the swing that you're creating? Um, and I think that's really important because sometimes when, you know, an individual walks up to your your lesson tee, you don't know um, if they're having any physical limitations or not. And that's why I always ask them. So um, I think that's one of the first question I always ask people is like, you know, do you have any physical limitations? Because with their physical limitations, it might drive the reason why they're swinging the way they're swinging. Um, and I think that's why you just have to be careful with um, certain people, especially older people as they, you know, as they come to the lesson tee, um, with the flexibility and their mobility. Um, because in regards to, you know, what they're, what they're trying to do versus what they're actually doing may not be the same. So I think that's one, that's one of the reasons I always ask, you know, about physical limitations and finding out, you know, um, you know, I'll videotape your swing and we'll look at it and see what they're doing. But um, that's why I always ask about physical limitations because I think that when people have physical limitations in regards to, like Freddie, you know, he has a bad back, so mm-hmm. that's why he swings straight upright. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people might emulate, you know, Freddie, if he, if you may, if he's got, you know, somebody's got a bad back or something like that. But I just think it's like that's one of the things is I always ask them, you know, what are you what are you trying to do versus what you're really actually doing? Yeah, and 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 good establishing early on too as to what their limitations and their abilities are um, from a physical standpoint. Mental side of the game is a much different beast, but the physical limitations obviously it's good to know. And you also want to make sure that if they are, um, you know, working with let's say a bad bat or maybe some, you know, long-term wrist injury, you know, it's good to have mm-hmm. that because sometimes you can make adjustments or tweaks in order to uh, accommodate that. And always whenever you're dealing with somebody, you know, that, that is dealing with that is you want to make sure that they have consulted with uh, a physician that specializes in that type of injury or that type of condition so that they're not just, you know, going out and making sure that, you know, that uh, certainly anybody is welcome to come out and play golf, but sometimes there's certain things that they need to be able to do, and if they're struggling to do that, it's great that they want to give it the old college try, but if, if the doctor <laughs> said, hey, this is something you can't do, um, then that's right. good to have up front as well. So I, I agree. I think you have, really have to understand that, and you have to make sure, again, it goes back to what we talked about, really listening to the students and those important questions uh, to, to get the information up front. Um, Pete, uh, great answer, by the way, Sue. Um, Pete, I'm coming back to you, and this is one um, – that 
I don't think we see too much in the amateur side, but it can happen. Um, avoiding burnout uh, in both practice and play. Um, you know, this is something, too, that sometimes you can, you know, it's great to get out. We want them to go out and practice. Uh, you know, a lot of times we're having to, to push them to get practice more. But then the other side of the coin, there's people that just practice, 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 and they get to a point where they're not really practicing with a purpose. You know, as I mentioned uh, off air earlier and uh, may have mentioned on the show a few weeks back that uh, we had a golf school, Golf Tips Magazine had a golf school up at Macklemore this past weekend. And one of the students that we were working with, um, you know, we talked about, um, you know, practicing with purpose and with intent. And I think if you're doing that, then you're going to avoid that burnout a little bit. But give me your thoughts on that as well. How do we avoid burnout? How do we make sure that they're practicing with intent uh, and purpose um, and also that, you know, we want them to play and get out and enjoy that. But, again, there may be limitations with that as well. What, do you, what are your thoughts here? Well, it's another great topic. You know, what I've tried to do with, with my folks is I I create practice um, I call it practice performance, but I create practices for them. And that way um, I can put together, you know, a, a plan that allows them to practice enough to get done the things they need to get done, but not practice too much so that, as you said, they're just hitting balls without any purpose. So every practice session has, has a distinct, you know, target and, and purpose that they're trying to achieve, and then they move on to the next one. That way we can sort of look at how they're practicing and what they're practicing and then they can also start to, in those practice sessions, figure out, you know, where their their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. Um, but I also like to combine it with playing. You know, I don't want them to just practice all the time. I want them to play. So part of that practice schedule is playing on the golf course. So it's a piece of it. So even though sometimes I'll tell them, I said, I want you to play nine holes, but I want you to do these things in these nine holes. And so they're actually practicing while they're playing so they can get the best of both. And uh, that way it, it gets them a little bit more secure that, you know, hey, practicing and playing, you know, it's, they're, they're interrelated. And so you don't think that, well, I can do it on the range, but I can't do it on the course. So I want them to, to be able to understand that, you know, they, they work hand in hand and they can help themselves out. Um, and and I, I understand that it goes into, you know, how your thought processes are and all that. But I think the more comfortable you can get in a practice routine, it helps you when you actually go to play. So, you know, I think if you design out exactly what you're trying to do each time you go to practice, it'll keep you from, from burning out and just hitting too many golf balls. Well said, Pete. Um, and, and, Sue, you know, another area, too, um, is course attitude um, can certainly affect uh, course results. True or false? Very True. Very true. And I think so let's unpack. Uh, yeah, unpack yeah. that a little bit. I knew that was going to be the answer, but unpack that. Obviously, a player's <laughs> attitude that's, again, falls in line with your How book. Time we have? Um, no, so, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, we, got, we got enough time. We got about 30 minutes. But, um, but unpack that a little bit if you wouldn't mind, because that sort of falls in, again, um, with a little bit of, of what you talk about in your book. So, um, course attitude, uh, is it affecting us out there? And if so, how's it doing it? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I always talk about with my students when we do playing lessons. I'm like, you know, the first question I ask, I said, okay, what's your objection today? Or what's your what's the purpose of the play today, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people just kind of ignore and they're thinking, okay, I just have to go, I just want to go play really, really, really well. 
um, and and have fun. And I think that that's one of the questions I asked him. I said, so are you here to have fun or are you here to play well? You know, one of those two questions. And I think it kind of depends on the player because, you know, some people want to just go have some fun and the other players want to, you know, some more of the serious players want to play well. And um, so what I talk to them about my book, I just say, okay, well, number one is, like you said, why do you, why are you playing today? You know, are you, you know, what's what's the purpose of your golf game? Do you want to do it for fun or do you want to do it for, you know, for to go, like, for example, if you want to make a golf team? And then I'll go through, you know, different, not to say attitudes, but different objections to with them, asking them questions about, um, you know, why why do you really want to play? What's your objection today? You know, um, what's the purpose purpose of the play today? Are you trying to score low? Are you trying to have fun? Um, you know, what's what's the real purchase purpose behind the game today? And I think that's one of the questions that I always ask people when we do playing lessons because um, I want to know where they're coming from so that I can help them achieve where what they want on the golf course. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, people struggle because I think sometimes their purpose isn't is isn't in the wrong box, if you may. Well said. Um yeah, I think I think Pete, just to you know, to add a little bit about that is your attitude can really I mean everybody, I don't care who you are, you your attitude can change on the course real quick. Um, you know, it can even sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, right off the first tee. You hit a great shot, you're in a good frame of mind, your attitude's upbeat, and you're excited about the round. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you, you know, snap hook it or a big old slice into the woods um, off the first tee, so your, your attitude um, <laughs> that you brought from the range uh, suddenly goes south. So I think you have to – what are some ways that you try to encourage, uh, I guess, your students to – even in the darkest moments of that round, to, to have that sort of positive uh, attitude, if you will, when they're playing? Well, you know, it's I, – I try to get them to understand that, you know, there are going to be times when they, they don't hit shots that they like. Um, it's, part of the, it's part of playing off, and so you have to take the good with the bad, per se, but also just to, to let them know that, you know, one shot's not going to destroy your round. Um, you know, you can make up for it at any other given point. And so you just have to keep, you know, moving yourself down the, down the road per se, and, you know, just continue to do the things that you know that you, you can do. And, you know, don't let those, those trouble shots get you down. Um, yeah. I mean, they're tough sometimes, you know, you have a great round going and then you, you know, like you said, you hit one out of bounds and it, it's not fun, but you know, it, it's it, in the end of the day, um, it's not going to ruin a, a whole round. So you just have to, to, to understand that there may be some shots that are in there, but, you know, it, it's, it's real easy for players to remember the one shot they, you know, sliced out of my house, but they forget the three twenty footers they made, you know, so it's, there's give and take a lot of times in a round. And so you, you always have to remember that, you know, that, that one shot's not going to be, you know, the, the end all. So, you know, try not to let it get you, get you, get you too mad. But on the other side of the coin, I also try to get them to understand, so when you hit those shots, I want you to ask yourself why, and do you know why? And if not, we've got to work on that. So, you know, jot that down on your scorecard 
And so you can remember that, you know, I got a question that, you know, why do those shots come up when I'm playing? And so that way we can tackle it at a later time. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's always a tough one. I mean, I, I say it all the time. Is it's no fun to, to, to go out and not hit solid shots. I mean, I try to get everybody where they can. Obviously, newer players, it's tougher. But, um, you know, you, you always want to hit good shots and, 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 you know, have the ability to score well. But you, you just can't dwell on the bad ones. Yeah, I always say to, you know, golfers is you want to treat when that bad shot happens, you want to treat it like it's um, something very uh, highly contagious, like a cold, and you want to put it in a little box that can't escape. So when you hit that bad shot, you just sort of put it in that mental box, and it doesn't, it, it never escapes. It never comes out into your mind. It just, it's gone somewhere, and you file it away, and it's done. And then you, you're, again, you know, you're, you're focusing on the task at hand. And that sort of falls in line, too, with sort of winning the battle inside, uh, you know, the mental battle. This is something that we see far too often. I mean, you know, Nicholas talked about many times over his career that it was how he thought his way around the golf course that made him a champion. It wasn't, you know, because he was the best ball striker, not saying he wasn't good, um, or, you know, necessarily, you know, the longest, he was certainly one of the longest, but uh, during his time, but it was really the battle that he, you know, sold himself on the inside. So how do we win the battle on the inside? How do we, how do we get our mind right? I mean, you touched on a few things here on the golf course, but how do you set yourself up mentally for success? What are some steps that, that you try to get your students to do even before they step out in the golf course? Yeah, the first thing, I mean, after they hit a shot, whether or not it's good or bad, I ask them what was, what, what was really good about what you just did? And sometimes the players struggle with that question because they're like, I didn't do anything good. And I'm like, no, think about what you really did, you know, in regards to what was good about what you just did. You know, find something, find the goodness in the shot, you know, and I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. They don't find the goodness in what they're doing. They find what's, you know, the bad part of it, that what they're doing. And, then I would ask him, okay, so what was good about it? And I said, what would you change about it? And then the third question is, how would you change it in, the, in that sense? And that's what I talk my players through when, when we're out there on the playing lessons. Um, that's what I ask them all the time because uh, too many people focus on what didn't go well. And I like mm-hmm. to like bring out what was positive about it. And then how would you change it? And then what's the plan of action to change it? Um, so that, that way you have, like I said, you have you have a strategy to go into the next shot. And too many people bring in what I want to say, the last shot into their next shot. And that's that's one of the problems with a lot of golfers is, you know, they're carrying they're carrying that what I want to say burden uh, of the last shot with them into the next shot. And I teach my players, I said, one shot at a time, you know, uh, we're going to go ahead and go to the next shot, and we're going to think about how we can do better and have a purpose for that shot and then go forward. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people struggle is because they carry they carry the baggage with them <laughs> into the next shot. And um, I just teach my players, like, okay, one one shot at a time, one shot at a time, one shot at a time. That's what I do. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, and that's an excellent point. You know, I've always equated this to, um, and I've said this many, many times on both this show and, and um, this show, Women of Golf, but it, it, I equate it to somebody at the airport dragging their baggage, their luggage, um, from you know one area to the other, and that's right. exactly what happened. Every bad round, every bad shot, they're standing there on the first tee, uh, and the bags are lined up behind them as they're getting ready to tee off. And you know it, it, it's a variety, and you've got to leave it at home. And that's why, you know, jokingly I say that, but truth of the matter is, you cannot worry about even if you're playing the same course that you played last weekend, you know, and maybe right. you had four or five really bad holes or maybe a half a dozen really bad shots, you can't focus on that. And that's what happens. Um, and, and this brings yeah. me to one of our last questions here. And we're going to unpack this uh, as a group, but um, you know, we've often heard, you know, when we watch the, the top professionals on TV uh, on, on, you know, the men's and the ladies tour, and that is entering the zone. Um, there's a lot of things that we can talk about here. One is obviously high, uh, developing a high self-confidence. Um, they're all very, when they're in that zone, they're very immersed in the task at hand, as we talked about. Um, very narrow of attention. Um, they sort of narrow their focus, if you will. And obviously they have very automatic and, and seemingly effortless executions of, of, uh, uh, of those shots. And obviously they're very in control of their emotional side. Um, and then they're enjoying themselves they're with a clear mind. They're out there having fun. So I'll start with you. Maybe we'll handle a few of these, and then Sue, I'll let you pick on, on as well. So one of the things, obviously, when they're in the zone, a player develops a high self-confidence, and they're very, very focused uh, on that task, which is gives them that confidence. Talk about some of those things as well. What happens when we're in the zone? What's happening? Well, usually you're playing well, which helps. Um, but I think um, – you know, most of the time when I'm, when I ask players, you know, quote unquote, what the zone was, I think they, they feel like, you know, they were just looking at what they were trying to do, looking at the shot and just hitting it. And they were, they were eliminating the process of the thought process of how to hit the shot and just hitting it. Um, and so they were, they were more focused on just playing a shot that they visualized than, than the technique behind trying to play the shot. And so I think um, a lot of times you get to a point to where, you know, you're just playing golf and hitting shots and not worried about, you know, number one, what the technique is to hit that shot, and number two, what's the consequence if I don't hit it well? Um, I think those things just go out the window, and as you start hitting it better and better, as you said, the confidence builds, and then, you know, now you're just looking at every shot and saying, all right, well, I'm going to make this putter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chip this one in. Um, so I think, you know, overall, the confidence level goes up because you are playing better, but I think – you start playing better because, you know, your thought process is that, you know, it's getting very, very simple and, and you're not really worried about, you know, too much of a technique per se as, you know, just, uh, all right, there's a 10 foot putt. I see it. I got to start it to, you know, a couple inches right and I'm just going to hit it instead of, I'll say, I got to take it back here, take it here, take it here. You know, so you start to simplify the, the thought process, which then, you know, makes scoring a lot easier. And Sue, what was, Interesting. One of the reasons why I wanted to throw this one in um, into the discussion is I remember an interview, and I believe it was Bubba Watson uh, after uh, winning the Masters. And the reporter asked him, he said, you know, what were you thinking about out there? And he's, this is Sunday after the round. And he said, really nothing. 
He said, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of weird. He said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, his discussion, but basically what he was saying is, you know, I really didn't think about anything. You know, I knew I had to go out here and do something. And, uh, you know, he couldn't really break it down. And I think even the reporter was a little bit taken back. So I think what happens is things become very um, automatic and effortless um, during that. And that obviously as well, I'm going to get you to sort of talk about that, but also um, something that's important to, to allow yourself to get into the zone is, is being in control of your emotions. So touch on those three areas. So what, you know, what are we talking about automatic and effortless? And then, you know, talk a little bit about being on top of uh, or in control of your emotions. Yeah, I think the first thing is, is like like I talk in my book, it's like you need to be in your right brain. Your right brain is the creative side, so it's just like I'm just going to go there. I'm just going to put it there, or I'm just going to swing it there, or I'm going to hit it there, um, that type of thing. The other part about it in regards to controlling your emotions is it kind of depends on the shot, and I think that um, a lot of the times when the players don't you know, hit it well, that's when they kind of get a little bit get upset. And that's why I always tell people, it's like, okay, what was, what was, let's think about what was good about it now, what was bad about it. Um, and that's the process I always go through with all my players in the sense that, okay, what was good about it? How could we change it? Um, what's the strategy for the next shot, for example? And I think in regards to controlling emotions, it's just about letting the shot go. And I think a lot of players don't let, let the shots go, meaning, you know, they'll, um, They'll think about what they did wrong, or and then they get upset, or um, they'll you know figure out a way to um, you know change their emotions or that type of thing. So what I tell them, all my players is like, okay, like um, that's why I always ask them, what's good about it? How can we change it? And what's the strategy for the next shot? That kind of thing. And that's the process I go through with all my players in regards to the emotion side of it, um, because that's you know, that's that's what they say. They're like, well, I was upset because I hit, you know, I, I missed I missed the putt. I'm like, well, what was good about it? And maybe the distance was really good. Maybe we just didn't read the putt, you know, well enough, for example. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I go through with all my players. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. That's important because, you know, if, if you bring, um, you know, Pete, somebody like Tiger Woods into the picture, you know, uh, I remember very early on in his career, um, you know, he certainly could hit the ball a pretty good long way, but he was not the most accurate off the tee. But one thing that he developed very early on was a very good recovery of um, his game. In other words, he was able to, you know, I remember uh, him hitting it out to the right on the Buick Open on, on hole. I don't remember what hole it was now, but he hit it into the rough. And, you know, he ended up carving a six iron and landing it, you know, about 10 feet uh, left of the pin. And people were, you know, flabbergasted that, you know, you know, I mean, I'm talking a big, you know, cut. And he was very in control of his emotions. And it almost seemed effortless, even though he had to give it a pretty good whack. So I think for players in that zone, I think you have to, really learn to clear your mind and just say, oh, here's the task at hand and here's what I've got to do and I've just got to get it done and not really focus on, because once the shot's done, there's nothing you can do. You can't change it. You can't take it back. It's done. So then you have to move mm-hmm. forward. So to sort of sum this thing up, if we want to be in the zone, if we want to get ourselves in the zone, what would be your formula of success 
for a player to be able to do that, to have that feeling of being in the zone. Wow, that's a good one. Um, you know, first of all, you know, let's go back to that example you just did with Tiger. You know, Tiger's practiced that shot a lot. You know, people may not realize that, but he's put himself in that situation and carved the ball around, you know, a driving range post or a, a flag or something. You know, so I think, first of all, you need to go out and put yourself in situations that you can sort of get yourself that you can understand you can recover from. You know, so it's it's not as big of a deal sometimes as you think it might be because there's there's a way out and you can still get, you know, a pretty good round going even though, you know, you're not hitting it as good as, as you'd like to. And I, I think, t- to me, those are probably some of my favorite rounds, the ones where I scored well but I didn't hit it very well um, because I knew I could recover. So I think if you can put yourself in those situations, I think it'll give you a, a, a better chance to do that. And then I said, secondly, you have to get your mind right before you play. And, you know, get on the range and get yourself warmed up and then, you know, put yourself in, in the thought process of, okay, I'm going to go out and, and, you know, tackle this golf course and, and have a strategy as to how you're going to do that first. And I think if you, if you have that strategy in place, it, it, it's going to give you something that you can do as you go around shot by shot by shot. Now you've got a plan in place. And I think it takes all the outside stuff away from you and gives you the ability to play better and sort of keep you in, you know, quote unquote, sort of a zone. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think, you know, if you haven't been in it, um, you know, it, it's something that, you know, from, from the outside in, it's kind of hard to say, well, no, you just have to do ABC and you're in the zone. I think it's it's something that you have to, you know, get yourself into and have played pretty well at times. But I think it's it's all in the thought process of, of how you prepare yourself and then, you know, how you look at how you're going to play. And I, I think, you know, what, what Sue said before, you know, hey, what's the purpose of the round today? You know, so I think if you can put yourself in a, in a frame of mind before you start, I think that's a good, good, you know, jump start to, to getting yourself into a better zone to play. Great way to wrap uh that uh, that question up, um, you know, th- there's you know there's so many things really that we can do as as somebody who's playing um, at whatever level to allow ourselves to get into that high level of confidence um, and and feel like we're in the zone. Obviously, it may not seem the same as what you know we're we're seeing the professionals do, and we're not you know we're not playing you know at the Masters or at the U.S. Open or uh, or the Open Championship, but you know where still to us, you know, we want to do well. Maybe it's our club championship. Maybe it's, you know, another important event, a corporate event that we're, we're part of and that we want to be able to, um, you know, uh, score and be successful in. And we have to be able to learn to block out, um, you know, all of the, the outside distractions. And so it may not be, you know, quote, unquote, that we're officially in the zone, uh, but it may be our zone. It may be our level of, of um, uh, you know, calmness and, and peace and comfort. And, and when we're out there, you know, we're going to give it, the, you know, the best uh, approach that we can do. And, and we're going to feel relaxed and in control, especially of our emotions. And that doesn't mean you're not going to get upset, you know, over uh, a shot here or a shot there or even a bad hole. It just means that we're going to reduce the level of stress and the level of anxiety and get ourselves into a comfortable zone where we can manage ourselves with um, a relatively high success rate. 
And I think for, for the average golfer, I think that's really what it means to be in the zone for them. What, what are your final thoughts, uh, Pete? And then, um, or sorry, Sue, and then Pete. Yeah, I think it's, like you just said, I think it's the important thing is like, okay, what's your objective today? What's the purpose? Um, and and help them go through that process of what their purpose is. And I think that too many golfers have, what I want to say, high expectations of their of the rounds. And I think they think it's supposed to be perfect or it's supposed to be, you know, yada, yada, or whatever it may be. And I think... Um, that's where people struggle. They think it's like, okay, I'm just going to go out and shoot a 72 today, um, for example, on a par 72. And most of the time it doesn't happen. But I think that um, you just have to, you know, teach teach your players, you know, how to respond to the not-so-good shots and teach them how to respond to the good shots too because I think that's what they want to – you want to – when somebody hits a good shot, they, I want I teach my players to anchor that feeling. What's that? You know, what does it feel like to hit a good shot and have have success at the end of the shot? And um, yeah, that's what I teach my players all the time. Like you know, it depends on what you're thinking about when you're on the golf course. And I think that's one of the struggles a lot of people um, have when they're on the golf course is they just they they have high expectations. And as we all know that you know. The game is 60-40. It's full swing, 60%, 40 percent, or I should say 60% short game and 40% full swing. And most people don't understand that. And I think that's where people struggle. They just don't understand, you know, the percentages of where could you score, you know, the best shots. And it's usually okay. 60% is what work on your short game, work on, you know, work on your putting, work on your tipping, work work on your pitching. Um, that type of thing, and that's what I do with a lot of my players. Is like I just try to educate them about what the what the score is actually about, and um, the percentages of okay, um, what's what do you think the full swing is in regards to the scoring in you know on a scorecard? It's forty percent, whereas sixty percent is mm-hmm. short game. And most people, what do they do? They work most mostly on their full swing, and they don't practice much with their um, with their short game. And I, that's where I teach them a lot of that. I just teach, educate them about, okay, it's a 60-40 game. Yep. That's uh, right on the mark. You know, you've got to be able to, um, in order to be a better player, you've got to work on the things, not only that give you the, the biggest, um, you know, struggle or difficulty in your own game, but you also have to isolate where, you know, here's the thing, you know, I think as as you know, teach professionals, I think we understand this inherently through our training and through our years of experience. But really, you're trying to learn to become a better player. You're not, you know, you're not going out there to, to just be a range rat. I mean, it's great to get out in the range and hit golf balls, but you're trying to be, become a player. In order to do that, you have right. to put all of those components together that we talked about here tonight. And you have to be able to find mm-hmm. the right balance. And, and as I said earlier on, you know, once you understand the why you're there, why, why you're playing, what, what level of play do you want, then you can sort of piece things together that, that are right for you. And uh, that's something that your, your golf professional can, can help you with. Pete, any final thoughts on, and, and we don't have, to, you don't have to stick with, you know, entering the zone, but uh, anything that we talked about tonight, any final thoughts as we get ready to wrap up? You know, I think more than anything else, it's, it's the, the negative aspects of being on the golf course, the, the, you know, those types of thought processes that keep people from playing their best. 
you know, you've heard it as well as I have. They're they're standing on the last hole, and they said, you know, if I three-putt this, I have to buy lunch for the fourth Saturday in a row, so you may as well just pick it up and buy lunch because you're going to three-putt anyway with that thought process. (laughs) So, you know, you you sort of got to change, you know, your your overall attitude and what you're trying to do and just try to keep it more positive and, you you know, um, laugh at yourself a little bit. Um, I know I I played around with – one of my good buddies last Friday and, and absolutely topped the three went off the tee. It went about 25 yards and I laughed so hard. And he looked at me and says, I thought you'd be mad. I said, no, that was one of the funniest things I think I've done in a long time. That was hilarious. Right. You know, it's totally right. had a to- totally different thought process to what I was trying to do. And that didn't work. So, you know, but I think <laughs> the more positive you are, um, I'm, I did make par by the way on that hole. So I'll just let everybody know that. So you can make par some bad shots. Um, <laughs> Right. But, um, you know, you have to, you just have to keep yourself as, as positive as you can. Um, and, um, you know, try to, try to look at what the, what the outcomes are and, and, you know, the more that you can to put yourself in a better frame of mind before you start and, and why you're playing, it's just going to make it easier for you to play golf and you're going to have a heck of a lot more fun as well. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, yeah, I don't feel bad, Pete. I've I've done something similar myself, you know, from time to time. Oh, it was funny. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I remember years ago on the panel, we had, uh, and I'm not going to name names, but we had a young a pro that came on and uh, was fairly new to the business, and he was, you know, real excited and, you know, still played a lot of golf and, and uh, you know, sort of getting new and into the business. And I said, well, I said, here's what's going going to happen i said the more successful of a teacher you become the less golf you're going to actually play yourself because he said you're not going to have time you're going to be so busy on the lesson tee and i said your your game is going to end up going south well theirs is you know getting better hopefully and he he didn't understand that well some years later we were we met up i think it was at the pj show and he said you know you're exactly right he said the busier i've gotten he said i hardly have time for my own game and he said it's starting to suffer a little bit and he said, I'm making a point now going back out and working on my own game as well. But, you know, you have to work on things. And, and this is really to sum up from my end uh, about tonight's discussion. Um, you know, can you, be, can you do, you know, talking about burning out, can you do things too much sometimes? Yes. Um, but I think you have to, you know, practice with purpose. You have to get out there and play as much as you can that you can honestly handle and, and enjoy playing. Um, but you have to do it with a sense of humility as well. Um, it takes time. It's a difficult game. There's a lot of new people that, you know, since we just went through this pandemic uh, a few years ago, uh, a lot of new people that never played this game came out. And obviously, like everybody else, you know, there's a little frustration that can go with it if you've never picked up a golf club. So you have to be patient, of course, uh, when you're learning this game. But you also have to be willing to put in and invest the time. So once you've answered that why question that we talked about earlier on um, and you decide what your level of commitment needs to be, you get a game plan and you work with your pro and, and um, you know, you do what you need to do to get to those goals. And, but at the same time, you have that sense of humility along the way because you're going to duff a few shots off the tee. You're going to skull a few wedges across the green and, and, you know, you're going to putt every undulation on the green, even though it started out as a five-foot putt, it's now rolled 20 feet past because it's down slope or what have you. So, you know, those things are going to happen, and you just have to laugh them off and then get focused on, uh, narrow that focus of attention 
on the next shot at hand because that's the one that counts now. So, all right, great discussion, guys. As always, I appreciate your your thoughts and input, and I think we uh, had an interesting one. I think it's a little bit different than what we normally do. So, um, on that note, I'm going to give each of you uh, a few moments. If there's uh, number one, let the folks know how they can reach out and get a hold of you. Uh, and then number two, if there's anything special that you want to plug, um, by all means, uh, now's the time to do it. So, Pete, go with you, and then Sue uh, to follow up. Yeah, thanks, Ted. It's, it's uh, you know, we say it all the time as well, but thanks for what you do because, you know, having us on here, but behind the scenes, you're doing a lot of work, and we really appreciate, you know, what you do to, to produce these shows. And, Sue, great having uh, great being with you this evening as well. They can reach me at PeteBuchanandGolf.com. Um, I'm moving. Uh, you can go out there now. It's a work in progress, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working toward more of a, an online presence, and so they'll see some of the things we're trying to do. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just easier to get out there. There's several ways you can uh, contact me. So, you know, send me a note. Let's start a discussion and, uh, you know, see how I can help your golf game. Sounds good. And, Sue, how about you? Yeah, you can uh, reach me at sueagergolf.com. Um, and, um, the yeah, the um, Golf Elastic Cinches is on Amazon. And, yeah, Pete, always enjoyed you, and it's always fun chatting with Ted. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and giving of your time, and um, we'll have, uh, I believe, one more show together next month when you come back on. I'm not sure what days uh, you guys are on, if you're on the same together or not, but um, we'll have one more opportunity to uh, to be able to uh, help the audience before we uh, knock off for the end of the season. But um but thank you guys for, for what you do and, and for spending time with me all these years on, on Coach's Corner. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right. Have a great one, guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. That was Sue Weger and Pete Buchanan joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll be joined by this evening's very special guest, Teva Dale. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget and so much more don't miss a single issue go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today all right welcome back and thank you for joining me this evening here on golf talk live we just finished wrapping up another great discussion on coach's corner and now it's time for me to relax sit back and spend some time with my very special guest this evening let me tell you a little bit about her and then i'll bring her on uh, her name is Tava Dale. She actually joined me on the Women of Golf along with Cindy Miller um, a little while back in the season, and um, we had a great time on there, and I invited her to come back on this program to spend a little bit more time to talk about a number of different things. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about her first, and then we'll bring her on. Uh, she is the um, owner of uh, Tava Inc. Uh, she's also a board member of the Golf Heritage Society and also authored uh, the book uh, Terroir of Golf, a golf book for wine lovers. Uh, she took up golf uh, fairly late in life and not having any exposure by family or, or friends or during her childhood. 
but realized that uh, her goal to be a decent golfer was uh, not materializing as much as she had hoped, uh, despite being a decent tennis player for, for a decade. Uh, but she turned it around and found if she focused on the aspect of being in nature while playing golf, a whole new world opened up for her. So she began writing about golf and has never stopped, beginning with short stories and now entire books. Um, as I mentioned, she became a board member of the Golf Heritage Society, uh, the first woman, in fact, to join the board uh, and opened up another avenue when uh, the editor of the uh, Golf Heritage Society journal, The Golf, uh, published a couple of her stories, uh, not just because of the joy of seeing her pieces published, but she experienced the exhilaration of connecting with so many like-minded golf enthusiasts. So um, very passionate about the game, so please welcome my very special guest, Haba Dale. Good evening, Taba. How are you? Oh, my goodness, Ted. <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> intro. Thank you so much. It's really great to be back with you. Well, thank you. And we get to spend a little bit more uh, time this evening. I know we got a lot of things to cover, but uh, we'll try to get through um, and, uh, and and get through and give you a chance to talk about a little bit of everything. So, um, But thank you for, for taking time out, and I appreciate you uh, coming on the show tonight. Um, so first off, Let's focus on um, a little bit about uh, the Gulf Heritage Society. As I mentioned, um, you're uh, a board member uh, for the Gulf Heritage Society and the first female, really, to join the board. So obviously that was uh, a very uh, good milestone to, to cover. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Uh, but you guys just actually wrapped up the, the – G- I'm going to call them GHS for short, um, just to simplify okay. the process. But uh, they actually <laughs> – yeah, I learned that when, when Dr. Bernacki uh, would come on, I had to shorten it because we talked about it so much. Uh, but they just had their annual convention in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So that just wrapped up. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I really love getting together with all these other passionate golf geeks. <laughs> I don't know what else to call us, but, um, you know, people who love the game, they love the history, they love the heritage, and they love to get together with each other. And I had a great time with so many people that I have been seeing now over and over. Uh, last time we were at, um, we were in Indianapolis, and and before that we were in Latrobe, uh, you know, home of Arnold Palmer. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I have made friendships with these people. And I think that is what is so, that's like the best benefit of being a member of the Gulf Heritage Society is the camaraderie. It's also what you learn from people. They're so knowledgeable. There's so many uh, serious collectors and major historians. I'm a minor historian, if a historian at all. But I learn from these people. So that's the other big benefit is the learning. And I also just want to say to any women who might be listening and thinking about, could this be a society that I could be interested in? I think that the the avenues for creativity for women are limitless in the world mm-hmm. of golf. And we get so much encouragement from people in the Golf Heritage Society that I I just I I have to thank all those people because they lift me up. That's a great point, and and just to touch on that a little bit, you know, I think for a lot of women, particularly, uh, and even for uh, I think for men, it's been a little bit different because we've had more exposure for a longer period. 
And really the only exposure most women have seen is, of course, through the LPGA efforts and things like that, which is fantastic. Um, so their sort of visual, if you will, is, oh, you know, a tour player, well, that's not for me. But more and more women are realizing that there are so many business opportunities um, in golf, in the golf industry, and, and subsequently in, in sort of spin-off industries that sort of parallel or work with golf. Um, and also being involved in an organization, as you are now, with the Golf Heritage Society, learning about the history of the game, how it began, and what the opportunities there are as well. So I think that's an important thing to, to really mention as well, um, because you've started to see that firsthand. And obviously, um, through Dr. Bernanke's efforts um, of trying to be more inclusive with the organization, that, of course, invited you to become a board member. Um, and now you're able to pass it on by reaching out to other women and explaining to them some of the benefits and, and that to others, members of the society as well. So I think that is something that you've uh, been able to sort of grapple on as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. And <clears throat> as as I might have mentioned a long time ago, I, I think I got noticed by by Dr. Bernanke when he started reading some of my stories in the quarterly journal called The Golf. And I wanted mm -hmm. to also say that is, for me, one of, if not the biggest benefit of being a member because the magazine comes out quarterly and it's so chock full of fascinating stories about, some of them are historical, but I started writing about other lady members like Debbie Waitkiss, who I think you know. <laughs> I wanted yes, her I to be a member, so I first I gifted her a membership, but she's kept it up. And another lady who lives in the Phoenix area, Corey Brett, who's a writer and an editor. And um, oh, let me see who else. Jill Manstreit, who is an mm -hmm. LPGA professional. And all these women, when I wrote their profiles, I think the membership was amazed. Goodness, right. we have all these people who are members of our society, and they all bring so much to the society. They bring a lot to the table, each one of them. Well said. And I happen to know both of them very, very well. I've interviewed them many times on the show over the years, uh, and actually both shows. And they are. And, and, you know, there's so many others that are in the golf profession who do so much to give back to um, not just the industry itself, but into their communities and you know, um, folks like Nancy Lopez, who of course is um, very well known for her play, but also gives back to her communities um, and has done so for years. So it, it's not just about playing the game. It's also about how can they use that, that gift that they've been given to make things better for, for everybody all the way around, and especially in, in uh, the women's uh, side of things. And so let me ask you, I see something kind of uh, very interesting and exciting that uh, at GHS that you guys are going to be sending a travel team. So you're kind of a new phase, kind of exciting phase. Um, they're going to be going to the PJ show in January down at uh, Orange County Convention in uh, Orlando. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I missed the last one because um, I know you're not going to feel sorry for me. I had to go to New Zealand and Australia. <laughs> So the travel team went without me. <laughs> but uh, this year I'll get to be part of it when we're there uh, in January. And, you know, it just gives us an opportunity to 
walk around, see what's going on in the industry, uh, meet with people. If they want to meet with us, we'll try and set up some meetings in advance. But an- another thing that Gulf Heritage Society is learning about is sponsorship. And a lot of potential mm-hmm. sponsors of the society would be at the PGA show. Our, our first significant sponsor is Mike Kaiser, the mm-hmm. founder and developer of Band and Dunes. And he got it, Ted. He just got it, what, what we're all about. And um, I just think there are other people like him who, when they know more about our society, they'd be they'd be overjoyed to to become sponsors so that's you know well we're going there to educate ourselves pretty much yeah and and that's a great place to go i i met uh, actually dr bernacki last year of course he's been on the show many many uh, times over the last several years but uh, we actually met face to face um in, uh, in orlando last year at the pga show and i'm sure i'll see him again this year um but speaking of which then after the PGA show, um, GHS is also going to be participating in another show out in Phoenix, uh, January 27th to February 1st. Um, tell us about what's happening there. So this is the GCSAA show, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. I think I got that right. Um, you got it right. <laughs> it was sort of... <laughs> It was sort of my idea to take up an offer that they had granted us through another member named Mel Lucas, who's been uh, in the golf golf industry for decades, very active in Europe before COVID, member of both Golf Heritage Society and GCSSA. And he said, well, you know, Golf Heritage Society has been offered a free table that was it, a free table. And I thought, wow, why don't we take advantage of that? So not only was it a table, it was a whole booth, and we got to participate in the GCSAA show in San Diego, and it was an absolute blast. And we made so many great connections. The USGA is there, the uh, American Society of Golf Course Architects is there, there all these people, and I, I said to you know the powers that be, the Bern Bernackis, I mean, these are our people. This is our audience. Mm-hmm. We need to go be where they are, and we did. Right. And they loved having us, and now we're invited back. So that's going to be really fun. In my well, Fantastic. I can't say it's my hometown because I live in Scottsdale, but <laughs> but right. I'll come back from the PGA show in time to uh, be a part of that. Um, I can be part of that travel team. Perfect. Um, speaking of travel, you did some uh, travel in the summer of 2023. In fact, you just got back uh, just a little over a month ago with your partner, Kevin uh, McGrath. Uh, you guys spent some time, right. obviously, in Ireland. Tell us about that. Well, we do live in Ireland. I get to spend my summers in Ireland thanks to Kevin, who was born in Dublin plays all he's single digit golfer since he's uh his college days. He joined La Hinch over forty years ago and built a house down there in County Clare on the west coast. We're right on the water's edge. 
Look to my left, I see the dunes of Lahinch. Look to my right, I see this really cool castle ruin and then the Atlantic beyond it. That's where I get to spend my summers, except that we move around a lot. This summer, <laughs> we were in Scotland twice. We had a big group in July, the uh, group called For the Ladies, and we based ourselves right in St. Andrews. We stayed at Russex, right overlooking the 18th fairway of the old course. Doesn't get much better than that. And we did lots of really fun things. We uh, got to have a VIP tour of the RNA World Golf Museum. We had dinner with the curators upstairs, a private dinner in the Niblick Brasserie. We had private whiskey tours and tastings at King's Barns, played the course earlier that day. And uh, then we had an amazing presentation by a VIP guest named Beverly Bell, who's also a member of the Gulf Heritage Society. Beverly is the mm -hmm. author of a book called The Murder of Marion Miley. And she did her presentation on our final private dinner in St. Andrews for the for the for the ladies group <laughs> so we, we, wow. we were, it was chock full of great stuff but the best thing i would say is that all the ladies got to play the old course and what golf pilgrim doesn't want to go to the home of golf and play the <laughs> old course and they all got to do it so they were happy yeah and and and, and it's nice too because you obviously had a lot of other things it wasn't all just about golf there were other things um that were thrown in there um that they were able to experience as well, which makes it fun. So it's, it's more like a, a, you know, like you said, a VIP trip uh, and, and tour of a lot of very interesting things in uh, the St. Andrews area. Now, you had a second group as well. Tell us a little bit about that one. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we got to come back to St. Andrews, and this time we stayed at the Old Course Hotel. This was a five-star trip top to bottom. Even the weather was five-star. So this was our wow. couple's dream trip. And we all just had the greatest time. And as you were saying, even with the, um, the group in July, it's not just about golf. It is, it's a cultural experience just to be in the town of St. Andrews, which, of course, is uh, where you have St. Andrews University and St. Andrews was the, you know, centuries ago, the kind of the ecclesiastic center of Europe. The, the, the pilgrims of those days were, they were religious pilgrims. So we also did a, a bunch of different things with the dream couples trip. But I can tell you this, and it involved a lot of uh, eau cuisine and a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a great way to, to cap off uh, um, a trip is to, to have that uh, throughout. And, and you know what? No, no trip would be complete without some wine, so I think that's fantastic. Um, but, but, <laughs> You're my you know, kind it, of it, guy, it, Ted. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting, though, you know, just hearing about that, and we're going to skip into what you've got planned for 2024 in a second. But, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, when you're planning, you know, this type of, excursion i mean obviously you know to especially if you're coming from the united states to go over to st andrews um in you know to that area uh you know it, it it's it, it costs money so you want to be able to have something to 
um, you know, be entertaining, be culturally informative so that you understand. So, so when you're over there, whether it's, you know, a week or whatever the case is, that you kind of feel when you come home that you were living there for the week and you've actually experienced um, the culture, the local flair and, and so forth, but you've also had an experience because obviously, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a new resort. It's not something that's just been built last week. There's a lot of history there as well, and especially for people that play golf, that uh, whether you're new or you've been a, a veteran of the game, there is no other experience uh, like going to St. Andrews. So uh, it's yeah, really indeed. interesting some of the things that you had planned, correct? Absolutely. And I also recommended to people, we put out a big document in advance. First of all, our travel tips to Scotland, and we go into the what the currency is and what kind of adapter you need. And in fact, one of the gifts we gave everybody was one of our favorite three-prong adapter. But then I suggested people at least go visit the grave of old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris at the opposite end of town. And a lot of them did. And some of them even took a walking tour of St. Andrews, which I just thought was fabulous. Um, I recommended other books to them to try to get a little more familiar with the culture of the town, particularly in the late 19th century. One of the good books is Tommy's Honor by Kevin Cook. And you really get a feeling for what it was like to live in the time of old Tom Morris and then when young Tom was born, what it was, what, what their whole uh, history was like, moving to Prestwick, where old Tom laid out the original 12 holes that became the course for the for the first open championship in 1860 and so i think i think that these these ladies in particular i think you know they started to connect the dots for themselves and realize oh this is where this game comes from this is what we don't we don't get this kind of we don't learn this history or this heritage in in America, but you can't go to Scotland and not, you know, be, especially if you're staying in the town of St Andrews. I mean, you're immersed in the whole town and the culture and the, and it's got a great vibe. It's charming. It's just beautiful to walk around. All the flowering baskets, just you know, it's. It, the people of St. Andrews, and they have so much pride in the town as well. Mm-hmm. So it's right. I, I, it's my favorite town. <laughs> a little, it's a big little town. It's my favorite. Well, and it's amazing too. In addition to obviously um, five star overall experience, you had five star weather, uh, which is unheard of <laughs> um, in that neck of the woods. You usually um, don't aren't as fortunate, and that's not to say it's bad, but it, it, it's certainly much different than what. Uh, we often are used to over here. Um, so as I mentioned, now you're gearing up, and I was reading through some of the notes earlier, and you guys are off to a boom for 2024, and it's not even here yet. Um, what's happening in 2024 as far as your travel? Um, business is going. You've got a lot of things happening up. So, so lay it, lay it out for us. We're almost overwhelmed. I mean, it's, it's uh, I think because of COVID, you know, the – the COVID pandemic was good for golf in a way. I mean, golf yes. really boomed during those years. And there's kind of no let up. But I feel that 
people who could not travel, now that they can, mm. there's all this pent-up well, demand, and boy, are they traveling. So we're very yeah. um, privileged to be able to curate a lot of trips for other people. We don't always, we don't, we almost never travel with these clients. There's too many of them, but <laughs> we do have one really cool uh, tour that um, we created several years ago called the Golf and Music Tour. And mm-hmm. this this one in 2024, it's been sold out for a couple of months already. But we wow. travel. We have three Irish musicians who travel with us, and they play golf during the day and music at night. And everybody has such a blast. This year we're going up to the north. Um, we're going to play Portrush, which is going mm-hmm. to host the Open Championship again in um, 2025. And Port Stewart, which is really an amazing uh, golf course and Royal County down, of course, I don't know. It's always top 10 in the world. The new golf magazine just came out with the new ranking and I, I don't know. I don't know where it is. But it's always top 10. And then we come back down to the Dublin area and, and that's a great, that's a great itinerary that, that anybody could do in, in one, in one week's time. But we have some other people who are coming over and, they want to do some more sightseeing. And I always like to recommend things like um, in Belfast, there's this amazing museum called the Bel- the Titanic Experience, and it is remarkable. I could just say anybody coming over, if you could consider carving out a half a day to go to Belfast and go to and have that experience. Also up in that direction is... Uh, a place called New Grange, which is older than the pyramids, older than Stonehenge. It's a um, a monumental portal tomb. And in America, we've never heard of this. The people overseas, everybody's heard of, say, the Grand Canyon. Everybody. But right. we don't. We have never heard of Newgrange, and that's another. That that could be an all-day experience, if if you're if you like if you like history and learning about history, which I do. And that's what makes the trips. You know, just reading some of the trips that you've already done, and and you know, uh, currently this year and what you're planning for next year. Again, they, it makes them very interesting because again, it's not. You're obviously playing golf while you're there. That's you know, uh, one of the purposes there, but you've also packed it in with some other things, some music and and other uh, activities as well, which makes it very interesting because, you know, even even the most fervent golfer out there needs to have a break from the golf course, especially if they played a bad round. <laughs> they want to do whatever they can to get away from the golf course for a little while. So, you know, it's nice to, um, you know, right to be able to do that. So, um, so great. It sounds it sounds like you've got a lot of things, um, you know, that are happening. And, and you know, as you mentioned, you're already uh, you've got people that are booking for 2025. So you're working two years out, um, which is a testament to what you and Kevin are doing together and, and putting these uh, very interesting and fascinating trips together. So uh, kudos to both well, of you, you. For, for doing that. Um, well, we so were going to say, roll out. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> no, no, go ahead. Oh, before COVID hit, we were going to roll out our golf and wine tour to France, and wow. we put it all together. It was 
100% all mapped out <clears throat> where we'd stay, wineries, Versailles, <laughs> and now we're going to resurrect that and another uh, trip that we have cooking is a trip to Italy, so we would experience golf and wine and cuisine and culture. So it would it would be a little less golf and a, a lot more of the wine, <laughs> more <laughs> wine tasting. <clears throat> so that there's well, and, and you know we're just finding so many people do share those dual passions. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know again that adds to the fun and the flavor of of any trip is to have you know all of these other things sort of packed into. Um, you know, there's a little something for everybody. Um, obviously, it's it, you know, there's a lot of golf being played too, but uh, there's many other things and, and opportunities to be able to explore the area and, and learn a little bit of history of, of somewhere other than your, your own home. Um, so, which brings me to um, our last topic that we're going to talk about, and there's a lot of things to cover here, of course, but um, is your new book, and that is um, Terroir um, of Golf, which is a golf book for wine lovers and how appropriate um, to have that. So let's talk about first how you came up with this name. Well, I'm so glad you asked because it was almost just a magical thing. Kevin and I were playing golf. Uh, we were we were on a course called the Macri on Isla, and Isla is a little island in the Hebrides, and it's far better known for whiskey, whiskeys like Laphroaig, Beaumont. I think that you just can't go there and not do whiskey tasting. So mm -hmm. this is a course that was laid out in the late 1890s, and it is so pure, so authentic, links golf. And we're out the day we were there, we're just pretty much the only two people on the course. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I had my aha moment, terroir golf, just came to me, that phrase, just like that. And I think a little while later, the subtitle came along. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I realized that as with grapes, so it is with golf. Everything mm -hmm. begins with ground. And as it is with a glass of wine that you hold in your hand or a golf course that you play, the end result is a living work of art. So that was the whole thing. I got that whole thing. It was like a divine download. And the first part of it is really a travel log um, you mentioned here where you obviously visit a lot of different clubs and courses all over Scotland. Uh, including uh, the Macri, which you mentioned in that. So, yep. you know, again, yep. as you're traveling along, you're you're really these thoughts are coming to your head, and you're saying, okay, I can put this together in a book, and here's what you know some of the things I'm going to lay out. Um, and you actually, which was really interesting, because you sent me an image of it. Uh, one of the images that you sent was the claret jug. Talk a little bit about that, because that's a very kind ah. of an interesting story. <laughs> oh golly, well. So many people have written about the claret jug and, of course, the trophy that came before it, the, the belt, the challenge belt. 
So you, you can't really talk about the jug unless you at least mention the belt because everybody else does. When the mm-hmm. Open Championship was first created in 1860, the trophy was this red Moroccan leather belt with this big silver <clears throat> um, buckle. And the winner got to have that belt for one year. And it was very much coveted <laughs> by any winner. And when it was won by young Tom, three three years in a row, 1868, 69, 70, young Tom got to keep the belt in perpetuity. Well, now we have no trophy. So, in fact, when they held the Open Championship in 1871, well, they didn't hold it because they didn't have a trophy, which is kind of weird. And the three clubs, Prestwick, Muirfield, and the Royal Ancient of St. Andrews, all pitched in 10 pounds to buy to to commission a new trophy and the trophy they commissioned was the sterling claret jug so that mm-hmm. became the trophy ever since then but i wrote my my story is why a jug and what is claret and i go all the way back to when the romans planted the vines in france to tell that story. So I, I get you all to strap on your seatbelts and time travel with me, and I can assure you nobody has written about the claret jug in such a way. I can imagine. Um, you know, and, and, and that's interesting because, again, it goes back to the history um, of that, which most people, unless they're real golf enthusiasts, really don't know the history and how it led up to um, you know, to more modern day times, particularly, um, so they don't know the story. And it's great that you. This is something a chapter that you put in the book as well, um, talking about uh, this iconic trophy because it is for people that understand the Open Championship and understand the significant uh, significance, excuse me, of the Claret Jug. Um, this gives them a little bit of a backstory, and actually, I'm sure, a very extensive backstory to it, um, which is you know is important if you're going to you know really become a golf enthusiast, you need to understand the history of the game and some of the many uh, things. And this is obviously a very famous one um, that you've obviously covered. Well, hopefully, well in your book. hopefully I make it yeah. entertaining. It isn't meant to be a textbook, but um, yeah, right. I do talk about how uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry, Henry II of England. And when she married Henry and came to England, she brought with her more wine, she brought more wine into England than comes into England today, in these days, in wow. our time. And it was just, she didn't just bring wine, I mean, she brought perfume and spices, and it just, she, she brought so much more of her culture being French, and the, and, and then the whole idea of the claret, the wine, it, claret became synonymous just about for a Bordeaux red and it got to be called claret because my French pronunciation isn't that great but it would probably be more like claret and the -hmm. British and everybody else including me find that a hard word to pronounce so it became claret and claret at the time the wine was uh, claret is more like clear and the wine was more clear. It wasn't so dark and robust as it is now, but over over 
over decades and over hundreds of years, uh, they figured out that wine actually ages very well if it's left in the barrel and it and it darkens and it's you know the the whole taste changes and but it's still called claret because it's that's because it's easy and it, and it and it's as i said it's really the common place word for a bordeaux red very interesting um and you also, I noticed too. There's a chapter in here which I found because uh, obviously I know all of, of the people that um, that you're talking about in this uh, particular chapter. But you cover um, many of the golf professionals who actually have their own wine labels. And I'll just name a few. Uh, obviously, notables: Ernie Els, Nick Faldo, David Frost, Retief um, Goosen, obviously uh, Mr. Jack Nicholas, Greg Norman, um, the late Arnold Palmer, and of course Gary Player, who just celebrated his birthday, and then. Uh, um, a couple of other ladies that uh, add out is Annika Sorenstam and Jan Stevenson. Um, so there's a dozen of them here that you talk about. Maybe you could talk about a couple of them that really stood out to you when you were doing your research and sort of getting the information together. Who were some of the real notables of this group that really stood out with their labels? Well, it's, it's you, you named almost all of them. And one person, I'm not sure because you – Rattled them off so fast. I'm not sure if you mentioned Ratif Goosen. And he yes, has I did. And Christy label. Kerr. The Goose. Oh, and Christy Kerr. Yes, uh, she actually lives not too far from me in Scottsdale. So Ratif Goosen, I don't know if m- many people n- know this. In fact, I believe when he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, he even talked about it himself. When he was mm-hmm. a teenager, maybe 14, 15 years old, he took a direct hit. He was struck by lightning, and he mm. was playing with another young guy. And when he was hit and he just, you know, fell to the ground unconscious, he, all literally all his clothes burned off his body, his shoes disintegrated, wow. and his watch melted into his arm and he did recover. <laughs> Not only did he recover, he went on to win two U.S. Opens. But I, I, you might say maybe he's sort of quiet. It could be because from having that experience, I think I'm, you know. From from if to me it sounds like he came back from the dead. He, mm. he had probably had a you know a uh, <laughs> a near a, a near death experience. I, can't, I just can't imagine being struck by lightning and, and surviving. Um, and no, um, well, they all have interesting stories. David Frost, he's fourth-generation vintner. He grew up, um, you know, working in the vineyards and, and saving money up to buy his first set of clubs by working in the vineyards. I know I've seen David's many posts or social media, obviously promoting uh, his label and that, so I'm I'm not really familiar specifically with the with the actual wines, but I know I've seen him many times. But, um, you know, obviously some I, I think again they're all even though they're all professional golfers, they're also entrepreneurs and they like to get involved in other aspects of of business and things like that. Um, who else sort of stands out of the crowd? Oh, um, that you really Luke Donald really enjoy Luke Donald. Right. I think you might have skipped over Luke Donald. I did. So yeah, Luke I did Donald, by mistake. He's, 
super, super, super serious wine connoisseur. And he is, I mean, he, he really, he's, he's under the hood. He's, you know, sourcing grapes and just somebody who's, you know, very intimately involved in the creation of his wines, as is Christy Kerr. She and her winemakers uh, both have been females, as a matter of fact. I mean, she gets she get down in the dirt, you know, in into the into the vineyards. And uh, Christy actually also has her level one sommelier certification. It would be kind of hard for her to do much more because she is not working in that industry, and you almost right. have to work as a sommelier. But um, well, back to Luke Donald for a second. I just I had to update everybody's stories for because terroir of golf might not be coming out until spring of 2024. But you know, so when I first wrote Luke's story, he hadn't been named a captain of the European Ryder Cup team. Of course, now he's the victorious mm-hmm. captain of the Ryder Cup team. So little right. by little by little, you know, I have to keep updating things like the Adair Manor story. In the last uh, chapter of the book is golf clubs around the world with a strong wine culture. And I, I often say this book is like a treasure trove of stories and unexpected discoveries. And I don't think many people would think of Adair Manor as a place that would be, uh, a, you know, a golf club, golf resort with a strong wine culture, but it is amazing. Their wine caves and and they also are going to be hosting the Ryder Cup in 2027. So that's a segue from Luke Donald to Adair and the Ryder Cup. And you know, it, it's interesting because uh, again, there are more and more players as as you point out in your book and obviously there's been a lot of uh, golf clubs and as as this game has continued to expand you know obviously for many many years uh, and it still is on, on some level the u.s of course is the biggest market but as golf has become more a global sport now um, and more and more courses coming up and obviously competing for you know the attention of of the golfing enthusiasts and now of course the wine enthusiasts they're you know they're ramping up um, and recognizing that hey, we want to be able to offer um, not only high-level uh, experience on the golf course, but off the golf course. And we recognize that a lot of people want to, uh, you know, taste and experience wines from literally all over the world, um, not just you know again here in the United States. So you're seeing more and more of that, especially in uh, the Asian market, as you point out, in, in South Korea and other markets as well. Um, it's just becoming, um, you know, really world-class in so many ways. Um, so it's interesting that you, you touch on that. So you really covered a lot of things in this book, um, not just about the wine uh, per se, but a lot of areas, and you sort of wrapped it up into not just the areas um, that you talk about, but you talk about some of the uh, contributors to wine from the golfing world, and then obviously some of the uh, locations and clubs and so forth from around the world as well. So you really covered a, a wide range of, of things um, in your book. Thank you so much. <laughs> Which is obviously, the, I know, the intent. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's very, very interesting. So I think somebody, you know, as you point out, 
in the sort of subtitle, uh, A Golf Book for Wine Lovers, I think they're going to certainly thoroughly enjoy that as well. Uh, and, and, of course, the many different uh, uh, you know, images that you put in the book as well as uh, some great writing. So, um, Oh, thank you. Well, Kevin, there's 66 million golfers in the world. I happen, I have to think that there's a few more wine drinkers. <laughs> and you put them all together, <laughs> it's a pretty big audience. It is a very big audience, exactly. Um, so the new uh, terroir of golf book will be, um, as you put it, an elevated golf uh, or elevated book experience. So, and that's uh, you going to be in print in spring of 2024. Um, how can people learn uh, and get get a, their hot little hands on that? I know, I think you you sold out um, quite a bit. In fact, I think you said you only had two hard copy versions left. Is that correct? <laughs> well, we we had a very small print run, and to kind of test the market, and we found a, a really there's a great appetite for this book and its content, and even some head golf professionals that we talked to and directors of golf who of private clubs that have member guest events both for men and women they were gosh we'd love to have something like this as a as a gift for for our member guest when can we get it mm-hmm. so um we can't rush this too much but um in fact my, the new book designer is Chick Harper who he mm-hmm. I, I own several books by Chick, and I never thought in my wildest dreams that I could ever have him be my book designer, but he's my book designer for this new, I, I, guess I just love that word, elevated, <laughs> elevated uh, golf reading experience. And um, and uh, the printer is a, a real top-end company in Glasgow, McAllister Litho Glasgow, and I, in my own library, I own several books that, that they have printed. I just got one called um, from the Royal Liverpool Golf Club called The Hoy Lake Celebration. And it, it's just, it, these books are so exquisite. So I, I am now going to have one of those exquisite books. <laughs> that, the new terroir, that's what I'm planning it. That's what I'm planning for it. Well, that's fantastic. Um... And, and like I said, it, it, it's really a very interesting book. Obviously, I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but um, it is a very interesting book. and has you know, a lot of information um, about some of the history of the game a little bit, obviously, um, with reference to the Claret Jug, and obviously about some of the areas around the world um, that you can find some great wine for those that are traveling and want to um, experience that. And then... You know, obviously, it's it's got so many other things as well. So I think it's going to be a great read for those, and and I can understand why people are, are already lining up. So I'm sure you're going to have to print <laughs> off a few more in in 2024. But so for those that want to get updates about the book, they can visit um, your author site, which is Claire House uh, com, or they can contact you directly at Tavadale. Uh, Tava, excuse me, Dale, at gmail.com, correct? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. And on the website, on the Clearhouse Publishing website, clearhousepublishing.com, right on the homepage, uh, there's a button. It'll, it'll show you that the 
Chirwab Golf Book, the first one is sold out. And then there's a button you can click on. It says Upcoming New Terroir Edition. Yep. And if you just click on that button, uh, it'll take you to a page where you can subscribe or get on a mailing list so that you'll get updates. And when it's available, you'll be the first to know. Perfect. So go to clearhousepublishing.com, and you can click on for the updated version. It takes you to a new page within their website. Um, giving you a little bit more uh, look and feel of the book, and then obviously uh, some of the new content. And there is, right as you said, right near the bottom, um, if you want to get uh, uh, updates, you can just fill out your information or email address and subscribe, and you'll get that information um, as it becomes available. But, Teva, thank you very much for, for coming on tonight. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate all that you do. And I hope you come back and, and visit me on the show again. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? I would love to. <laughs> I'm so honored that you've had me now again, and we get to talk about one of my other passions, which is writing. So um, I'm, I'm very honored. I feel very honored, Ted. Thank you so much. So I, I for those also um, that are interested for those few spots that are going to be left for your travel, um, can they reach you at the same email, or do you have some other way that you, you uh, prefer for them to reach out oh. if they're interested in contacting you? Well, sure. Anybody who wants to contact me at tabadale at gmail, uh, I welcome you to do that. Uh, I have another site you can visit <laughs> called Scottsdale Collection, scottsdalecollection.com. So the Scottsdale site has uh, lots of testimonials. It has a lot of trips that we've done in the past to give people a feeling for what we have done before. It does have the whole itinerary of the new golf and music tour for 2024, but it does it does tell you it is sold out. But um, people just keep, you know, there are a lot of people who've done this trip before, and they just keep coming back because it is so much fun. The combination of the golf and the music, and I mean that's that's Ireland. That's what Ireland is all about. And throw in a little Guinness, <laughs> you've really got what. Well, and then some castles and some gardens and some standing stones and all the other things that I'm interested in. But um, so we're sure to do another one. And uh, we'll, we'll. I mean, we have to do this one first. We, we don't. We don't want to get people's hopes up too far in advance. But um, this this one is going to be a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, we know it. It's it's a tried and true. We've got a track record doing this golf and music thing. It's it's really something really special. So ScottsdaleCollection.com, and you'll find that's a whole other world. <clears throat> and there's there's much more about golf and golf architecture and a little bit of my writing, too. Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much for joining me this evening uh, to talk about your book and obviously talk about the many things that you're doing on the travel side of thing and also for all of the great work uh, helping to expand the uh, Golf Heritage Society as well as one of their members. So keep up the great work, and you're oh, welcome to come back and join me on any of the programs, so, Golf I Talk Live so and obviously the Women of Golf. I just so appreciate what you do. Uh, you're, you're, you're an amazing man, Ted. Thank you again for having me. I really feel so privileged. It's my, my pleasure. And uh, have fun in 2024 and uh, much continued okay. success with the book. And uh, you might we'll come talk and to join us. Soon. 
I we may. might have you over in Ireland or Scotland or France or Portugal or Spain or any of the other places we're going. That would be fantastic. Thank you again. Okay. And have a Okey great dokey. great rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, that was uh, Tabit Dale, uh, my very special guest. And again, you can uh, check out her new book uh, is at the clearhousepublishing.com website. All of the information there uh, talks about uh, what's in the book, but you can also, uh, to uh, the current book, obviously it's sold out, but there's a new edition that's going to be coming out for next year. Uh, again, you can click on that link, just go to the homepage, and there's a link to scroll down about halfway, and it says upcoming new Terroir edition, you just click on that, it'll take you to the new page, and you can fill it out if you're interested in getting on that uh, waiting list um, and get updates. And then also, if you're interested in uh, the travel side of things, you can visit her other website, scottsdalecollection.com, and you'll see all kinds of information, upcoming trips, and and, uh, obviously a way to contact her there as well. Um, And if you're wanting more information about the book, you can also reach out to her at tabadale, T-A-B-A-D-A-L-E, at gmail.com. Um, I want to thank all of my guests this evening, Taba, of course, and also I want to thank the gang on the Coach's Corner segment, Pete Buchanan and Sue Weger, for joining me earlier on this evening. Always a great discussion there with another great panel discussion and another insightful interview guest. I hope you'll join me. God bless everybody, and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.